As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman and I'm here to tell you what The Athletic has planned across its podcast network during the Euros. My pod with David Ornstein will become the Athletics England show throughout the tournament to bring you all the latest news and insight from inside the England camp every single day. Then we'll also have nightly editions of the Totally Football Show, taking a look at all the big talking points from the competition and looking ahead to the next day's fixtures. Now, if you're feeling nostalgic for tournaments past, we've produced an eight-part documentary series that tells some fascinating stories from both on and off the pitch from the last eight euros elsewhere michael cox's zonal marking pod will offer an in-depth tactical breakdown of all the biggest games while adam hurry's football cliche show will take a look at the tournament's alternative storylines so as this never ending domestic season finally draws to a close we'll have plenty of euro 2020 coverage for you to enjoy as the tournament gets underway in just a couple of weeks time Totally Football Show. Today, week of finals special edition featuring the Champions League, the promotion playoff and the Europa League. Villarreal and Man United gedanced the night away till the worst performance by De Gea since you in lockdown. We salute the yellow subs elsewhere while Man United suffer an Emery loss. Is it instant recall for Spurs with Pochettino? We check out Thursday's shock story, discuss Southgate's 33 long player list does it have a good B-side? And experience our own mega drama finale in the Inter-Totally Cup. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener, my old friend. We've come to talk with you again. It's Thursday, the 27th of May, and we've got Duncan Alexander with us. Hello, Duncan. Hello, James. Tom Williams also on board. Tom Hello, James. And joining us too is Lindsay Hooper. Hello, Lindsay. Hi, James. Woof. What a week. I'm glad the season's over and things have calmed down a little. He said ironically. Europa League final. Loads of bits of news. Some crazy news this week, no? Madcap, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, it's a very strange week, isn't it? Because the season is almost finished. There's a couple of showpiece finals, but then you've got international squads, you've got players signing contracts, managers leaving. It's, you know, there's, it's kind of free form football, um, which some people like. We've already reached that this season, last season hinterland mm. where you're not entirely sure how to refer to the season that has just ended but is also still ongoing. Oh, interesting. Confusing time for everyone. But that's where a, a tournament helps because that kind of extends the current season, I always think. So you, it kind of uses up the close season. We're about to step back in time. We're going to finish one season and then go back to 2020 for Euro 2020 tournament, which is also Ooh. taking mm. us into a different, weird, parallel universe. Wow, all right. Well, you better hurry up with your season reviews for 2021. Duncan, have you done yours yet? Have you got a, a stat of the season that you want to uh, regale us with? Uh, yeah, there's a few. I mean, there was a point in December where Zenadine Zidane had lost more games this season than, than Steve Bruce, and everyone went, ha, 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 that's one of those managers won't be in his job at the end of the campaign, and, and so it was proved. And then there was also, obviously, a lot of pandemic focus this year, and I, I worked out that the top three scoring players in Premier League history with the letters in vaccine in their name have all played for Everton, aka the School of Science, and people try and convince us that the Premier League isn't scripted. So I was go. at an end-of-season social, actually, Duncan, last night, sat next to an Arsenal fan who continuously brought up the fact that Arsenal had been second in the form table for mm. half of the season, which seems to be a stat that they gravitate to at the minute. Yeah, Daniel's story was was big on that one, and it, it does seem outlandish, but I would, I would argue if that's not really a trophy for us when they possibly should focus on, you know, preparing for next season. So. <laughs> Baby steps, Duncan. One stat we'll all have seen is that Spanish teams against non-Spanish teams in big finals is now 16 for 16 or 19 for 19 if you include the Spanish national side. Uh, let's begin then today's roundup with the latest triumph in that series in Gdansk. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Europa League final, Wednesday night, Villarreal defeating Man United 11-10 after the penalty shootout. In a week dominated by a dom, we hail the subs. Hurrah. Who was excited for Unai Emery's uh, latest triumph? Yeah, I was. I think he got... A lot of unfair criticism in his time in England. Um, you know, people sort of making jokes about his his accent and pronunciation and stuff. It's like, well, he can speak English really well. I, most of these people can't speak Spanish, um, and he is like a he's like a legend of the Europa League now. That's four wins. That's twice as many European trophies as, as Arsenal have ever won. So you know, on a previous show, you said he should get to now keep the trophy, Duncan. Yeah. Well, I think he should now get the Conference League trophy, which is like a kind of Terminator version of the UEFA Cup with you know, right. kind of muscular. So the, irony, the irony being that he won't actually be participating, if he's with Villarreal, he won't be participating in the Conference League because thanks to this triumph, he, he and Villarreal will be taking a place in the Champions League at the expense of Monaco. I didn't realise this twist. Is that right, Tom? Yeah, so Monaco were crossing their fingers for a Manchester United victory because it would have allowed them to go straight into the Champions League group phase, having finished third in Ligue 1. But now, as a consequence of Villarreal winning, they have to go through both the third qualifying round and the playoff round 
Um, and the same thing happened to Nice, I think, a few seasons ago. And they knocked out Ajax in the third qualifying round and then lost to Napoli. Um, so there are some, some big fish swimming around in that, that um, qualifying pond for, for Monaco to be wary of. I think it's good that the winners of the Europa League get a Champions League spot, but it can create a situation like last night's game where Manchester United have already qualified. So in essence, Villarreal's prize for winning the game is bigger than Manchester United's. And you do wonder if that has a slight psychological effect. I know every team and player wants to win trophies, but yes. for Villarreal, it was a huge you know, carrot in the distance, whereas for United, it was more of a, a chopped carrot, maybe. I don't know. Not sure... Not sure if I can second that, but it, it, it was it was in a way from a sort of purely neutral perspective, uh, it's it's more enjoyable to watch a club like Villarreal win the Europa League because that's a success that has genuine meaning for them, not just in terms of Champions League qualification, but the first trophy in their what is it their ninety eight year history. You saw those scenes of joy at the end. Of course, Man United would have celebrated winning the trophy. Of course, it would have meant an awful lot to their supporters, but when you get teams dropping into the Europa League from the Champions League, particularly clubs like Manchester United, there is that sense that they think Europa League is is beneath them. And it kind of mm. goes back to this feeling that when you have one of those big clubs in the Europa League, you're better off either just going out straight away or winning it. Because there's nothing worse than you know losing in agonising circumstances in a semi-final or a final of a competition that you don't really want to be in in the first place. And performance-wise in that final, to continue Duncan's carrot analogy, you know, the animals that like carrots, you know, I would say Manchester United were akin to a rabbit going after the carrot, whereas we know that thoroughbred horses love carrots too, and and that seemed like Villarreal's performance. For many people, Lindsay, it was a far from 24-carat final. 26 shots all in all, but uh, all but three of them were in the penalty shootout at the end. So there wasn't that much gold mouth drama. Only one save all evening, and that was literally on the final kick. Villarreal had taken the lead through a brilliant set piece. Man United with more red wall problems than Labour central office politics tick. Uh, what did you make of the goal? I just am fed up of Manchester United's set piece frailty. This is oh, but it was brilliant though, Lindsay. I mean the goal itself, but I think if you if you're taking it from a Manchester United perspective or wanting to see an English team doing well in a final like this. I mean, it was just route one. I mean, the delivery of the free kit was fantastic, but they must defend this better. They must defend it better. But did you see Rio's breakdown at, at halftime? Not, you know, him getting over-emotional, but when he broke down <laughs> the way that the, the, the movement of the Villarreal players had opened up United? Yeah, it was very well worked. I think, you know, some goals are straight off the training ground and that is what Unai Emery is, is very good at you know you, Villarreal were sat very de- defensively two you know banks of four almost back six at points and it worked essentially because United really struggled to break them down but yeah I mean to Lindsay's point I think you know after I'm sure many Manchester United fans laughed at, at City last season missing a central defender and, and losing form in Liverpool this season but it turns out you know, it can happen to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do wonder if Maguire had been there, whether they might have might have defended that a little bit better, yeah. And not to diminish uh, the skill involved in Villarreal scoring their opening goal, but given United's frailties at set-pieces this season uh, and the absence of Harry Maguire, opening them up is probably about as difficult as opening up a tin of carrots. So uh, right. perhaps we should... Finding a tin of carrots. Kind of get the carrot thing going again. Nice. Like and it's fallen away the last two minutes or so. 
<laughs> Gerard Moreno with his 30th goal of this season, celebrating, did you see, by miming injecting something into his arm, which for me as a long-term viewer of kind of Spanish football was troubling until I remembered that he'd promised to do this on Spanish TV as a homage to all the health workers who have been busy vaccinating the population. Oh, that's what it meant. That's I what it meant. I thought it meant something else. Well, indeed. But mm. no, it meant that. Uh, a lot of people calling that goal, by the way, smash and grab. But, Duncan, I don't know how you feel about some XG stats, but at half time, Villarreal's XG was 0.67 and Man United's was 0.09. So. Yes. And it ended 0.9, 0.9. So, which after 120 minutes of play is not super exciting. And I think, you know, it bears out what we saw. Well, United did come back strongly at the end of the first half and then the second half. Not a surprise to see them get an equaliser or who it was who scored it, Enzo Cavani with his 17th of the season. I enjoyed the experience pro thing of I've scored in a, in a major final. I'm just going to grab the ball and run back. I, you know, that was, that's what you want from a, a you know, well-travelled 34-year-old striker. At that point, did you think United were just going to do their usual coming from behind in the second half act? I mean, they should have done given that they had all the ball and they had all their most talented attacking players on the pitch and all Villarreal were doing was basically defending uh, and not even countering all that much. And it almost felt like a sort of quite classic UEFA pro licence exercise. You're going to have the ball for the whole game. You've got this team who is sitting in deep. How are you going to break them down? And this has been the problem that United have had all season. Um, you know, it goes right back to the start of, of, of Solskjaer's tenure, probably even before. They're brilliant. They're devastating when you give them space to attack into. But when you deny them that space, they do struggle. Uh, and every time they've dropped points in the Premier League this season, it's invariably been because they've come up against teams like this who, who deny them that space and United can't come up with any solutions. And it was, it was maddening to see all this attacking talent on the pitch, but with no great idea of how they were going to break Villarreal down and I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that you know Solskjaer is not a coach who who teaches attacking patterns it is basically just left to the forward players to figure it out and when you know Bruno Fernandes is as tightly shackled as he was last night when Marcus Rashford's having an off day uh, you know Cavani I thought had a good game I thought Mason Greenwood was good in moments McTominay did what he could sort of driving forward but it is always down to the individuals and when those individuals aren't able to make a difference you end up with the result that we saw last night well I think it also the goal the United goal came in a spell of four shots in about the space of a minute and shortly afterwards um Emery brought on Coquelin for Carlos Backer, which at the time seemed hilarious because, you know, they hadn't had a shot since the goal. Everyone's like, ha, 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 Emery, what are you doing? But he then made a series of substitutions that really stymied United and, and basically got Villarreal through the rest of the match. So, you know, United didn't make a substitution until the 100th minute, which is kind of testament to the belief Solskjaer has in his first 11, but also because you looked at the bench and you're like, well, there's not really that much there. And I think... Well, it was Donny van der Beek, are they? I mean, not to go well, back over old issues, but he was sat there. He was sat there. He he is quite good at, at sitting there. But um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was an odd final in terms of Solskjaer. He put all his options in the first team. And it was like, if this works, great. But if it doesn't, and we have to break them down, then I'm kind of stuck a little bit. 
there's two types of extra time in football. There's really sort of like, let's just carry on and see who can win this game, which is relatively rare. And then there's the, look, there's going to be penalties. Let's just amble around like West Germany and Austria and see what we can do to not score. But that, I mean, that, that was not very wise, was it, Duncan, going into a penalty well, shootout for, you know, you know, United are to historically what England are to penalty shootouts. They've lost six mm. of the last seven. Why would they but, want one? But here's the thing is that, you know, this was a game where you could have five substitutions and then an extra substitution in, in extra time. So six substitutions. And United had two goalkeepers on the bench who were quite good at saving penalties. You know, Dean Henderson has saved five of his last 19 at club level. David De Gea, it wasn't one of those like, oh, we looked it up after the match and we found out David De Gea isn't very good at saving penalties. Everyone knows that. So, right. Cabin 10 wants to know when the last time was that he saved a penalty, Duncan? It was the FA Cup semi-final in 2016. And how many penalties? Lukaku. How many penalties now, ago was that? That was well. He's now gone 40 without saving 40. one, including so right. it's quite a lot. I mean, <laughs> he didn't look like he was going to save any of them. Really. Right. What's the thing? Right. He got he got nowhere near them. He got nowhere near any of them. And he, he, the commentators even seemed to pick it up that he was he seems to be diving quite early. And we know that. A, a, okay, I mean. I suppose when you're when you're facing players who aren't regular penalty takers, the chance that they're going to have sort of special penalty taking tactics is is perhaps smaller than if you're you're facing a first choice penalty taker. But generally, penalty takers look to the goalkeeper for information before deciding what they're going to do. So when the goalkeeper's already halfway down, when you're halfway through your run up, that just makes it even easier. Um, so I think the fact that United didn't, I mean, we don't know. He, they could have put Dean Henderson in goal and. He, he could have fared just as badly. Right. Um, but that does feel like something that could have changed things. And also, going back to the start of the penalty shootout, it looks like Bruno Fernandes had the opportunity right. to yeah. um, give United the first kick, which everyone knows is a huge advantage in penalty shootouts. Is it? And for whatever reason, perhaps just simple generosity of spirit, he decided, no, Viral, you can... You can uh, you can have the first kick, and it's in front of your own fans as well. So you know that'll be nice. And it's just it just meant that there was more pressure on every single United penalty. As it happened, all the outfield players you know managed to withstand that pressure. But you knew when De Gea went up uh, to take his penalty that he was going to miss, and, and what, so it proved. There's a lot to unpack from the, the penalty shootout, which is in, it was in many ways the, the highlight of the evening. Whether it was uh, the performance of the spot kick takers as they stepped up with the pressure building with each successful conversion and, and how they replied with just an incredible series of kicks. But first of all, quantify for us digitally, Duncan, how much of an advantage is it kicking first? Uh, depends slightly on, on which data set you use, but it's around sort of 56 to 60% of the teams wow. that, that go first when, when the penalty shootout. So it is a definite advantage. Now, you could argue with this one that the fact it went round to, to both goalkeepers means that the quality was so good that that might not have made a difference. But as Tom said, you know, the United concert, from the from the fifth penalty onwards, United were kicking it to stay in the game, which is a lot of pressure. And, you know, I mean, David De Gea, 120 minutes, no saves, and lets in 11 penalties in a shootout. That that has got to be a unique... But when you say no saves, how many shots did he, did he face? It's not like he faced kind of 20 shots and didn't save any of them. No, what only face one, which yeah, fine. Yeah. But it is still a it's a, it's an anomaly. All right then. All right. Well, this is the moment then when after twenty one mostly outstanding shots, including one from Villarreal's keeper Rulli, it now fell to David de Gea. Vamos Villarreal, vamos por Rochi, por Dianeza, y por el Madrigal, y por Sena, y por Forlán. De Gea, Rulli, de Gea, la parada. Oh! Oh! 
the local commentary team there going satisfyingly bonkers at Villarreal, becoming the smallest town to ever win a European final. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about this game from a Man United perspective perhaps in a second, but let's just get a little word on what this means for Spain and Villarreal from our Spanish correspondent Alvaro Romeo, who joins us now. Alvaro, what's the reaction been then in Spain? Well, the reaction has been a really happy one because Villarreal is probably, from all the Spanish teams, one that doesn't have any enemies, you know. They don't even have a local derby in the top flight because that could be against Castellón, I presume. So, yeah, even the Valencia fans like Villarreal, despite Villarreal being quite close to Valencia. So, it's been a happy reaction. I really like the front page of Marca saying, it's not yellow. It's gold, referring to Villarreal's yellow submarine and the color of the club. And uh, AS, the other uh, main sporting paper, um, says that uh, it was a, a heroic performance from a heroic champion. So, yeah, it's been um, a really, a really nice night. Uh, many players have been uh, talking to the press because they are from Villarreal, like the likes of Pau Torres, for example, who is born and bred in Villarreal, and some others like Raúl Albiol, for example, who won the Europa League or the UEFA Cup in 2004 with Valencia. Now he wins it 17 years ago uh, with Villarreal. Jerónimo Rulli, a goalkeeper who admitted that he never took a penalty and yet he scored it. So yeah, it's been a really happy reaction to all this. Incredible. No, and about to Moreno, who's busy busting out his Anfield chants <laughs> in, in, in the post-game celebrations. Unai Emery, very composed when he spoke to the, the British media afterwards, although he did point out that they'll be in the Champions League and Arsenal and, and Spurs won't be. Uh, it was, uh, in many ways, his triumph. Yes, it was, uh, because I believe that uh, he had a really good plan for the game. Again, this is a team that uh, beat Arsenal and beat Manchester United in the last two stages of the competition. Having limited resources in comparison to them, let's not forget that one of the most important players of Villarreal was absent, and talking about Samu Chukwese, the Nigerian player. And uh, a boy who is an academy graduate like Jeremy Pino had to play, and he seemed to have the seniority to play a final. And yeah, I think that uh, Unai Emery has managed very well this squad. Let's not forget that this is a team that loses Cazorla last summer and they got three midfielders uh, in summer 2020 for only 9 million. Uh, Capue, Coquelin, Parejo, Unai Emery asked for some of these players and then in the final he made the five substitutions. Uh, not like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer who did his first substitution too late into the game and then uh, he just uh, did the final replacements ahead of the penalty. So yeah, there is an understanding in Spain that Emery is a better manager than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, that he proved that. Um, let's not forget that this is the Spanish manager who has won more European finals, four already, so full praise for Unai Emery. Absolutely. A lot of talk in this country, Alvaro, about how small Villarreal is, the figure of 50,000, etc., banded around. C- can you quantify it for us? How small are we talking? Well, we're talking about a town that is probably smaller than the neighbourhood I live in, in Patni. Um, if you put Patni all together with Wandsworth, that must be the that must double up Villarreal. But they're, part of, but they're part of London. Is it, it's out on its own or is it part of a larger conurbation? No, it's not. Villarreal is a town on its own. In fact, this is the municipality with less population to win a European major trophy, surpassing Mechelen, the Belgian municipality. In 1988, they won a, a, the Cup Winners' Cup. Villarreal is really small. It's a town that most of the population in there, or the big part of it, work for local businesses, also for the owner of Villarreal, Fernando Roch, who has like some businesses related to ceramics, the 
brother of Fernando Roch Villarreal, president has a, a chain of supermarkets too. Uh, there is a Mercadona there at Villarreal as well. And it's a very small town. Uh, the ground actually is uh, disproportionate in comparison to, to, to the size of Villarreal. Yeah, it's a dream story. I mean, this is a, a team, Jens, you have to understand that sometimes when uh, you have like a new investor in a football club, they want to get quick success, all right? But Villarreal hasn't done it like that. Fernando Roch, the owner and the president, he's the 18th biggest Spanish fortune, uh, according to the Forbes list. Uh, and when he got the club, uh, he didn't try to get the quick success just buying the best players around because he couldn't. But he created a really good academy. Villarreal's academy probably is the third or fourth best in Spain. And um, the team has always had like a nice taste for good football, signing the likes of Pellegrini, signing the likes of Unai Emery now because they wanted to play great football. And they have achieved that slowly but gradually. So, you know, they work very well with the kind of limited resources. And they are an example for Spanish football. In this time of financial crisis, the model of Villarreal is working. Don't forget, James, that this year we have five different winners. Eh? Athletic Club Bilbao, Real Sociedad, Barcelona, Atletico de Madrid and Villarreal. This variety is brilliant for Spanish football. Right. Might not be those five Spanish sides, though. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Thank you so much, Alvaro. Thank you, guys. Take care. Well, Alvaro Romeo there. Tom, can you give us a comparison of the dimensions of Villarreal? I can, James. Um, so Villarreal's population uh, is around 50,000. So to put yep. that into a British context, that mm. is like a team from Neath, uh, oh. from Clacton-on-Sea, oh. or perhaps from Crosby, Crosby winning a major European trophy. So wow. there you go. We've witnessed something truly special. Not that that will be much solace to Man United. So the popular view post-game Wednesday night, Thursday morning, was that once again Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had showcased his deficiencies and this was a particularly bad bit of timing from his point of view when the likes of Zinedine Zidane and Antonio Conte are now floating around the job market. Is it fair to pin it all on Oli? I think he deserves a certain degree of of blame for what happened. I think if you look at the, the physiognomy of the game, I think an elite level coach with the resources at his disposal finds a way of breaking down uh, a team like Villarreal who aren't really doing anything beyond defending uh, and ultimately playing for penalties and the strategy that worked out because they ended up winning the, you know, winning the tournament on penalties. So I, I think there is a question mark there about Solskjaer's ability. He's shown in games against... Uh, high-level opposition that he can do it. He's been quite inventive sometimes in his tactical approach, but it's always against teams who he knows are going to come out and attack United. And what we saw against Villarreal in, in the final was that when teams don't come out and attack United, they struggle. What works in Solskjaer's favour is that pretty much everything else has gone well for him this season. United were comfortably the second-best team in the country, um, You know, finished the season without w losing a single away game in the league, which is a phenomenal achievement, albeit with a caveat that this is in the age of COVID, so you know, no fans in stadiums. Um, so I think what the Europa League final showed was that you know people who've expressed reservations about his coaching acumen 
were right to, to express those doubts because th- there are shortcomings there. But at the same time, if you look what, what he's achieved, you know, domestically this season and also the way that he's brought players on, you know, Luke Shaw's had a fantastic season. Scott McTominay was fantastic last night. He's he's helped players through difficult periods. You know, Mason Greenwood's won. Daniel James came back into the team at a time, uh, you know, in the second half of the season and had a good little run. You know, his man- management has generally been excellent. So I don't think there's going to be any great appetite for you know him to be sacked really though Tom because you know one of the words that you used in there was limitations and I thought that was a word that Manchester United were trying to move away from they don't want limitations they want to be unlimited in success and what they can go on to achieve and I just think tactically he's shown himself to be inferior to a lot of the top coaches in the game and this Europa League final exposed that more than any other I mean the one thing that I honed in on in the post-match interview with Solskjaer after the game and it's only one tiny little phrase but if I was a Manchester United fan I'd object to this he said we didn't turn up well that's your job to make sure that they do turn up I mean that's that's entirely valid I just I just I I can't see who's going to sack him Edward isn't going to sack him you know if you look at all the boxes that Solskjaer had to tick this season, he's ticked most of them. I don't think there's any great appetite within the fan base for him to be sacked. So it's not like that the board is going to come under pressure from the supporters for his head. It's just that, you know, that there is that question mark. And, you know, I, I personally feel that long term, he probably won't prove to be the manager who takes United back to the level of challenging for titles, challenging for, I mean, you can't say he's not challenging for European honours because he got United to the Europa League final. But, I, I you know, I think that that sort of feeling was borne out by what happened. But at the same time, I just I don't see any great clamour for him to be sacked. I think politically, I, I don't think there'd be any sense in, in doing it. Yeah, I agree. And, but I think, you know, he made a lot about the fact the finals on the 26th and that was the anniversary of the, of the famous, you know, Champions League final in 99. So not only that, of... Duncan, but he mentioned the fact that it's his wife's birthday and the day that they got married, the 26th. And yet, do go on. And yet, as as Daniel Story points out, Dean Henderson, number twenty six, didn't didn't get a run out. But I think that kind of points to the fact that he he does really like these kind of heritage, you know, the the kind of the hand of kind of God guiding sort of football in a way. But whereas, if you looked at the evidence, Arsenal managed a total of three shots on target across two games against Villarreal in the semi final. So clearly, United needed to go into that game with a plan to break down Villarreal. That they knew that was going to be what they needed to do. And lo and behold, it happened and they they didn't really have that. So it's just this kind of, you know, sort of blind faith in kind of heritage that is eventually, you know, that won't get you very far in modern football. I hate no. to bring up the Super League phrase, but, you know, we're talking about teams that were ambitious enough to want to be in a breakaway league. But are mm. they ambitious enough to put a manager in charge that can get them even a European trophy? I mean, we're talking about the Europa League final as well. We're not talking about a Champions League final here. Well, Lindsay, it's interesting you mentioned the so-called Super League, to borrow UEFA's own phrase uh, this week, because the word is uh, certainly from Spanish media outlets that UEFA is seriously considering going ahead with expulsion of Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus because of their ongoing support for that proposed tournament. Uh, Were that to happen, they could, of course, those three clubs appeal the decision, but it would be Real Sociedad, Real Betis and Napoli who would take their place. The clubs have responded, either we modernise football or we will witness its inevitable ruin. Remember, they're doing it for us. They also invoke dialogue with UEFA, which, of course, was so much their theme when they were doing all of this in secret 
before their uh, dramatic Sunday announcement. Anyway, we'll follow that story with great interest. Next up, let's deal with Thursday morning's absolute bombshell out of North London. So it's the Champions League final of manager sideline gestures. Guardiola makes a first move with a classic finger-finger swap-swap. Oh, Tuchel responds with a hopping upside-down V. Oh, and Guardiola surely wins it with some rapid standy uppy push-ups. Sensational! We're expecting some serious moves on the sidelines of the Champions League final, but if you make one move, make it an absolutely free £5 bet builder on Man City v Chelsea this Saturday. Paddy Power! Pre-match bet builder bets only must have previously deposited £5 min. Max one free bet per customer. T's and C's apply. 18plusbgambler.org. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Listener, it has been a busy week. Along with the Europa League final, we've had Zinedine Zidane having his final game uh, with Real Madrid. Same for Antonio Conte, who's left Inter just days after winning the title. Christophe Galtier has uh, left Lille in similar fashion. But perhaps the craziest manager movement story of all is the one that popped up Thursday morning that has Tottenham Hotspur in talk with Maurizio Pochettino about a shock return to North London this summer. To join them, not any other North London side. Jack Pitbrook wrote this up on Thursday morning. He joins us now. Jack, clickbaiting or is this for real? Hi. Uh, yeah, it is for real. Um, Tottenham are talking to Pochettino about coming back to the club this summer, uh, 18 months after he was sacked for Jose Mourinho. Um, I can't promise Spurs fans that it's going to happen. You know, I've had lots of Spurs fans asking me to do that this morning. Um, I'd probably say he's the leading contender for the job at this point. Uh, it's going to be difficult. You know, he's got a year left in his contract with PSG. He's only been there for five months. Um, but I think Pochettino is very attracted to the prospect of returning to Tottenham. You know, he loved his time at Tottenham. He is adored by the fan base. He has a good relationship with lots of people at the club. And he's found PSG to be a very different experience from that. So I think the, the, the appeal to him, especially on an emotional level, is very strong. OK. Spurs fired him, though. What's changed for them? Well, I think, I think the failure of Jose Mourinho in that job, you know, he was there for 17 months, he didn't get them back into the Champions League, he didn't win them a trophy, he played a style of football that the players didn't enjoy, the fans hated even more. And I think for Tottenham, they've had a bit of a realisation that maybe things were better under Pochettino. You know, clearly the experiment with Mourinho didn't work. And uh, throughout this whole head coach process, Tottenham have been looking for someone close to the Pochettino benchmark. You know, they want someone who plays an aggressive, exciting style of football, who promotes young players, who works to improve the players on the training field every day. And, you know, if Pochettino is the benchmark, I think they realise they might as well try to get the man himself. Mm. All right. If it happens, what do you think the likely impact would be on certain players who are considering their futures elsewhere? 
Well, in terms of Harry Kane, obviously, you know, it, Pochettino really made Kane, but I don't think that he would necessarily change Kane's mind. I think Kane is very set on the fact that he wants a new challenge away from Spurs. He wants to play for a team competing for the Champions League, the Premier League, that sort of thing. That said, I think that if Levy successfully appoints Pochettino, or for that matter, another top manager, it would strengthen Levy, Levy's position in saying to Kane, you know, I brought in a very good manager, give me another season, then we'll see where we are next year. Um, but I don't think it would necessarily have Kane desperately signing a new deal for Spurs just because Poch has come back. Jack, what percentage probability do you give this uh, deal of happening? Uh, wow, I've been, I've been thinking about that a lot this morning and I'm yet to commit to a figure. Uh, I'd say less than, less than 50, but right. quite a lot more than zero as well. Hi Jack, it's Duncan. Would you say that the, if they get back together, it would be a bit like when Tony and Carmela Soprano go back together, it would be a much more kind of business-like relationship and, you know, that both sides know what they're getting out of the deal. Because I think it kind of, it became, it sort of drifted the end last time. I, I, to be honest, I don't think it will be more business-like. I think the main driver for this is emotion. I think the prospect for Pochettino after um, you know a year out of work and then a sort of pretty mixed five or six months of PSG, the prospect of going back to Tottenham and being adored by 60,000 fans is hugely attractive on an emotional level. Jack Pickbrook, Lindsay, are you convinced? I'm not. I, I, I must admit, I'm a huge Pochettino fan. But how many times have managers returning to former clubs? How many times has that worked? I don't know whether Duncan has the answer to this. Um, well, Newcastle, are the team that try and do it more than others. Um, obviously, Keegan went back. His second spell was okay compared to some other ones, other managers there, but not, not the heights of his first one. So yeah, I mean, generally. If a manager goes back to a club, it's because both the club and the manager are seeking to kind of, you know, rekindle previous highs rather than progressing. So, but I think it is different with Pochettino in a little way because it's been such a short spell. This is almost like, you know, both sides have realised it's an aberration almost that what happened and, you know, everyone went a bit mad and it's almost like they're trying to just delete the whole Mourinho uh, era and just pretend it never happened. It's like getting back with an ex, isn't it? in that you hope that the love you once felt for each other will be enough to overcome the problems that ended up derailing the relationship the first time around. I hope she's listening, Tom, that's all. <laughs> Lindsay, <laughs> please just call me, please. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> I suppose my follow-up would be, what position is he going back to at Spurs? I would argue a much worse position than when he left them. I mean, especially we'll, we'll obviously have the Harry Kane chat rumbling on all summer. So let's just put that to one side. But he he had that rebuilding job the first time round, And it's as if Daniel Levy is going, you know what, we'll get you back. We'll get you to build this squad up again. But in order to get the actual trophy or the the ambition that Daniel Levy has in his head, he doesn't see that person being potch. And he made that explicably clear when he got rid of him. So I, I don't understand how that would all fit for either of them, with with their egos around it. I know that they left and had good terms, but Potts surely went to PSG to show that he can win things. Now, he, he won a League Cup. Obviously, the, the big talking point has been around the title. But in the second year, who knows what they could go on and do? 
isn't that what he's going to want to go and prove? And I think if he comes back to Spurs in the current state that they're in, he's got an even bigger project on his hands. Tom, how difficult was it, do you think, his time, his brief spell so far at Paris? Well, it was interesting that Jack mentioned emotion and we know that Pochettino was someone who really is, is governed by his emotions when it comes to the decisions he makes uh, about where he wants to work and who he wants to work with and that sort of thing. And his time at PSG so far has been quite emotionless. I mean, part of that is the COVID context and not having supporters in stadiums, but it, it feels like he's made a very deliberate decision to sort of dial things down on, a, on, uh, on the emotional front. So he's not particularly animated on the touchline line uh, his press conferences his media interviews have all been quite dull uh, he's been speaking through an interpreter as he did when he first came to England with Southampton so I, it doesn't feel like he's charmed France in the same way that he succeeded in charming England during his time at Tottenham I think part of that is a, is a reflection of the fact that he knew PSG were a club where there was lots of external noise, where there were internal conflicts, where there, were, there was always media buzz. He's done everything he can to try and limit that. Um, but just sort of looking at him, you, you, you've not seen the Pochettino of old. You don't see that, you know, that sort of, that, that glint in his eye uh, that we were so used to seeing when he was at Spurs. Uh, and in terms of his impact on the team, I mean, he sort of changed things around a little bit. Um, He's drawn some fantastic performances out of Kylian Mbappe, notably. They had two fantastic um, achievements in the Champions League, knocking out Barcelona and Bayern Munich. They won the Coupe de France, so he's got the sort of the, the monkey of having never won a major trophy off his back, but they fell short in, in the league and title race, as Lindsay mentioned. And, uh, you know, they, they were nowhere near where they've been in, in recent seasons. So... Yeah, I mean, it would be a huge surprise. I, th- I think PSG would be uh, would be really disappointed to lose him because he is just at the start of you know what is supposed to be a rebuilding project. The players seem to like him. You know, we've seen Mbappe, Neymar running to hug him on the touchline after scoring goals. So he does seem to have had a degree of buy-in there. But at the same time, that there is this sense that he's yeah. I mean, I, I think hearing what what Jack said about you know the, the emotional side of things, you you've not seen someone who who looked like you know his his heart was pounding out of his chest at the thought of of managing PSG but I guess we'll you know we'll have to wait and see what happens we will all right lovely all sorts of comings and goings managerially speaking uh, this week uh, with positions at Real Madrid Inter to be filled maybe Barcelona as well potentially Juve uh, although there's word again today that Max Allegri may be heading there instead of the other 16 job offers that he presumably has on his table speaking of managers though and managers who were moving Lindsay Saw last weekend that you had your last interview with Nuno Espirito Santo at Wolves. There was a a touching picture of it on on the social. There was. It got captured. um, And I did thank him on behalf of Wolves supporters for what he'd done for the city as well. I think that Hmm. that needed mentioning in this pandemic year. Um, he, He was lovely. It was emotional. I did feel that by the end of that match, I was really getting the distinct impression that this was a decision by Wolves, not by Nuno. And I think that made me, that left me with a, a, a feeling of being sad about it because I think it right. should have been on his terms. Now, I know it it looks like it's been mutual, but I don't know, they're just reading between the lines. And there was an article as well on The Athletic by Tim Spears that Fosun were actually looking at pulling the trigger after the, the West Brom defeat in January. And I think he'd earned a lot more than that so you know if he suddenly popped up at Spurs or if he popped up in another job um, and you thought that was the reason why I think it it sat a bit better but as it is it does feel quite sad 
Yeah, they have been very disappointing this year, as I, I don't need to tell you. So I think that maybe it had a sense for people that it clearly wouldn't have done last year. But it, it, Tim's business piece is, is, is great at, at just reminding us of, of the incredible progress, the journey that Wolves went on in Nuno's company. And it's got a little bit lost, I think, uh, when the news of his departure came out last week, amid the rest of the, the final day news. But just mark for us what that four years meant to the club, the supporters, and as you say, the town of Wolverhampton. I mean, in my lifetime, I have not watched football like I did under Nuno. He came in, he made promises, he injected energy into the club that hadn't had it for a very long time. And he delivered on everything that he said and and surpassed those. I think it's really short-sighted to judge Nuno on this last pandemic year. And it hasn't been great, but he has been away from his family. There have been extenuating circumstances as to why he hasn't been able to be on the training pitch doing some of the things that he wanted to do. The biggest thing that Nuno missed was the pre-season. You know, if he'd have got that again, I think there's an element of support that were there on Sunday campaigning out the front in their thousands, greeting the team bus as it came in, singing his name, saying they wanted him to stay because that element of support recognises this has been a period in Wolves history that will be very difficult to replicate. I know there is a project um, from Foson and huge ambitions looking forward, but whether that actually happens to take off at any point again now, I, I, I mean, as a Wolves fan, I'm probably being a bit negative, but I'm thinking we're in a scrap next season. But I, all I can do is thank him for, for what he brought to us. The, the football we played, those, that promotion season, the two seasons afterwards, I'll never forget. Right, finishing seventh, reaching an FA Cup semi-final, embarking on the club's first European campaign for 40 years, reaching the quarterfinals. And as you say, not just the, the football stuff, but also donating, what, a quarter of a million pounds of his own money to help uh, in, in, well, families in, in trouble in Wolverhampton. Yeah, and he's declared a love for Wolverhampton, and you know I was born there, and I, I love I love my family, and, and I love the people, love but I struggle to love it sometimes. Right. So uh, you know, it's really it's really nice to to see that he got so engaged with the local community, and the difference it will make. There are very many deprived families in that area, and it will have made a huge, huge difference. And not only did he get on board, but he got his playing staff on board. Connor Cody was on board. And that will make a difference beyond football. That's immeasurable, I think. You can't bring the two together. Mm. All right. Well, a club that was in, as Tim points out, a little bit of chaos when he took over, uh, but hopefully won't be reverting there anytime soon. They're talking about uh, Bruno Large, erstwhile uh, assistant to Carlos Carvalhal at Sheffield Wednesday in Swansea, but more recently in charge of Benfica for very much a season of two halves. They're quite big shoes to fill. Uh, Nuno's, so it might help having a large manager. That's that's Goodness great. Me. Yeah. What do you mean, Big Sam? He is available. Don't complete the set. Don't. Now, uh, elsewhere, squads are getting announced for the Euros, which start. It says here in a fortnight. Can that be right? All sorts of craziness out there. No Real Madrid players for Spain, but Adama Traore is in there, as is Brighton's Robert Sanchez. I was quite surprised that Adama Traore got a call up, but you know we'll be we'll be doing a special, well, a, a series of preview shows for the Euros, talking about that, uh, how the teams are shaping up for the big tournament, uh, and then when the thing starts, we'll be doing nightly shows, nightly totally football at the Euros shows, and there'll also be a daily England show 
already. There's one up uh, right now, indeed, talking about Southgate's uh, 33-man provisional squad. England, of course, have Austria and Romania coming up as pre-tournament friendlies. Uh, any any particular thoughts on England's squad that you guys want to air? I wonder how much impact uh, Marcus Rashford's performance in that Europa League final will have had on Gareth Southgate and his view of him um, to take him as an England striker. I mean, personally, I just don't think he is consistent enough at the minute. Um, I like Marcus Rashford and obviously he's done a lot this year, but in terms of options, do you not think that Danny Ings should have been in with a shout? You know, in terms of clinicalness, somebody that if you haven't got Harry Kane at any point for whatever reason, then you need someone that can fill those shoes. I think we struggle. I think the difficulty there is that Danny Ings is more likely to come in for, for Kane or, or Dominic Carver-Lewin, whereas Rashford's position in that team is on the left-hand side. And he's performed really well there for England. I mean, you go back to that, that win in Spain in the Nations League and you had that front three uh, with him on the left, Sterling on the right and Kane in the middle. And those three work really well together. Now, there are question marks over Rashford's form. There are big question marks over Sterling's form. Uh, and obviously, you know, they're, they're under threat. You've got Foden can come in on the left. You've got Grealish, you can play there as well. You've got Jaden Sancho on the right, Mason Greenwood even. Um, but... Yeah, I, I think given given sort of previous service to England, I, I think Rashford deserves to, to still be to be in that conversation about the first team. Weirdly, I'd forgotten and, until this week looking some stuff up. He Rashford played twice at Euro twenty sixteen, which I'd kind of had passed me by. So you know, he 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 was obviously very young then. You know, maybe his his kind of experience and seniority now will get him a start at the start of the tournament but as Tom says we've, I think the one position England are, are heavily stacked in is, is wide forward so I mean I'm, I'm sure that the two friendlies will you know those players in those positions will be champing at the bit because they know that that you know those two slots are up for grabs and I'd be tempted to trade one of those wide players for a central striker I honestly and because I don't think even Calvert-Lewin is that consistent does he take every chance that's presented at him I think he's had a great season but I, I don't know I, I personally am in the Ings camp well much more of this kind of thing and the build up to the Euros with our previous shows as I say next up oh we still got loads to talk about we're going to be doing the Champions League final Man City Chelsea which is one of four major finals this week because you've got that, the Europa, the Intertotally, of course, and also, this Saturday, the biggest game in football, the Championship Promotion Playoff Final. That's next. Keep listening for Benji Lanyado versus Michael Cox in the Intertotally Cup, sponsored by Paddy Power. And it's pre-recorded. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Swansea Brentford, everybody, or Brentford Swansea. I'm not fussed. How much is it worth? 90 million, is it? Probably. A lot of money. The richest game in football, they say. Swansea looking to return to the Premier League after three seasons away. Brentford looking to return to the top flight after 74 years. They would be the 50th club to feature in the Premier League, which would be exciting. Of course, they lost in the playoff final just last year. What do you think? Well, they've got the worst record of any team in the EFL playoffs. They've nine times they've been in them and they've never won. So they are the kind of the unluckiest team. But they, you know, they looked pretty good in the in the second leg against Bournemouth. Bournemouth lost their heads as they did pretty much every week this season. It seems as an experienced Championship watcher of one season, um, Wickham's glorious, potentially successful campaign. Um, Swansea and Brentford are the two teams that. The only two teams that really took Wickham to pieces. Um, we lost seven-two at Brentford. Obviously, even Tony's a, a great striker, and you know they have a lot of attacking threat. But but Swansea as well. You know they they've still got um, that kind of passing ethos that they had when they came up to the Premier League. They sort of lost before they went down, but they've they've brought it back. So yeah, it's uh, I think either one of these teams will be a, a pretty good addition to the to the Premier League this season. But. You know, personally, um, it'd be quite nice to see see Brentford back up there. They were the, the highest London team in 1937, so maybe maybe that's something to aim for for next season. I'm not sure what sort of addition Swansea would be, though, actually, Duncan, because they, they have eight players that are going to be out of contract after this final 90 minutes, this big showdown. And there's key players in there, like Harahan, Andre Ayew, um, Routledge, there's lots of loan players that they've had to get them to this situation and you feel like there might just be a complete gutting of the, the main core of the squad that they would then have to build for Premier League and I, I don't know what, how equipped they are to do that. Yeah, that's that's fair but they do have a pretty good recruitment set up so I'd imagine that they've got that in hand. Uh, Lindsay, why don't you have a listen to the Totally Football League show Extra Time which is as it happens, out today. And it features big interviews with some of the people taking part in the three playoff finals at Wembley this weekend, including, of course, plenty of Swansea chat. Mm. Now, as mentioned, there's also on Saturday, but not at Wembley, down in Porto, the Champions League final, Man City against Chelsea. Yes, it is a final rich in romance, two mega-moneyed Premier League sides meeting for only the fourth time this season. And their third encountering six weeks. Of course, their supporters won't care about that because this is the Champions League final. But in case any neutrals out there are feeling unmoved by the notion of Man City against Chelsea, what would you say about this game to pique their interest, Tom? Well, it's going to be the first time that they're going to go head-to-head with full-strength teams. Uh, Thomas Tuchel has beaten Guardiola in each of the last two matches one in the FA Cup semi-finals and one in the league. But if you look at the teams that City put out in each game, the FA Cup semi-finals, basically the reserves, uh, Zach Stefan in goal, Gabriel Jesus up front, Ferran Torres played, Benjamin Mendy played. And then the team that Guardiola put out in the league was possibly the weirdest team he's ever picked. It was that team that had like a back five and then a midfield three of Rodri, Ferran Torres and Sterling with with Gabriel Jesus and Aguero up front and 
And so, you know, Tuchel hasn't come up against uh, City's uh, A-team, um, which is the the strikerless four two four. I mean, at least that's what that's what we expect to see. I think with De Bruyne and, and Bernardo Silva uh, as the two uh, most advanced central players, and Foden and Mares wide, and a couple of holding midfielders, and then a back four. So, although these teams have seen quite a lot of each other in recent weeks, we've not yet seen them go into battle with their best teams on the pitch. Fair enough. Lindsay, what about you? What gets you hot about this game? There are a couple of things that really excite me about it. One of them being Phil Foden and Mm. the fact that he could announce himself on the biggest stage of all. And being an England fan, that really has piqued my interest. There's also the article that Rafa Honigstein did in The Athletic, and and it's about this tactical masterclass. He'd called it about the, uh, the grandmaster chess duel between Tuchel and Guardiola. And back in the Bundesliga, when Tuchel was with Mainz and there was... Bayern Munich headed up by Pep Guardiola. Yes, Bayern got the better of Tuchel, but they really went for it. And if you read this article, it's fascinating the way that Guardiola and him dissected this in a pub one day and talked about all the tactical nous that was needed and the way that Tuchel really tried to take the game to a Pep Guardiola side. And so I think Pep will be expecting that. I think this is probably the final he didn't want, isn't it? Um, He would have much preferred to have had Real Madrid, I think. Uh, And with Tuchel um, in charge of of the tactics for this, I'm just, I'm fascinated by the moves that are going to happen to keep continuing that that chess theme. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great article. And it has a strong parallel that that Rafa's quite keen on with the movie Heat with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Uh, Yeah. Duncan. Not sure Tuchel's baseball cap would would make it into De Niro or Pacino's wardrobe, but um, yeah, I think I think what we can hope for is a good uh, one nation Champions League final, and there haven't been many. Obviously, recent memory we've got Tottenham Liverpool, which uh, was not a classic, but there have been some good ones. Real Madrid Atletico in twenty fourteen. I think that's possibly a, a kind of good template for how this might go. You know, that was a a pretty close game. It was one all. Um, and then Real Madrid ran away 4-1 in extra time. And you could possibly imagine this sort of match where, you know, City maybe take the lead, Chelsea equalise, and then, you know, maybe City do prosper in extra time. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, City, everyone focuses on their attacking, but in terms of expected goals, they're the best team by miles in the Champions League this season. And vice versa, you know, everyone talks about Chelsea's defending under Tuchel, but, you know, they the way they took Real Madrid to pieces... Um, they should have scored a lot more goals. So I think both these teams have got what it takes at both ends. And let's just hope we get a, a proper showpiece end of season final. Robbie Lung and uh, Burn Van 3000 are both interesting. Robbie writes, do you think that Man City will overrun Chelsea in midfield, especially if they play without a true number nine? I mean, that is the threat to Chelsea. And I think it'll be interesting to see how aggressively Chelsea approach the game. Um, I mean, in that, that first leg against Real Madrid... They were brilliant. They just went at them from from the first whistle and Real Madrid just couldn't get out. Uh, And I think if if Chelsea can do that successfully and prevent City building up any kind of rhythm, then perhaps that's a way for them to to take control. But yeah, I I think given the way that City play, you know, in that strikerless system, uh, it just it gives the man on the ball so many passing options. I, I think it'll be fascinating to see how aggressively uh, Tuchel approaches it from a from a defensive standpoint because he likes his defenders high up the pitch. You know he's a la- he allows the two wide centre backs to follow their players 
all the way up the pitch. Um, and if he thinks that, that that's the way of shutting City down, it could make for a really explosive opening sort of 15, 20 minutes. I mean, the big news is that, that N'Golo Kante and Eduard Mende are back in, in training because, you know, Kante, people think of him as this defensive midfielder, but as we've seen this season, he was the one that was breaking the lines against Real Madrid. He's the kind of get-out clause of that of that midfield press. And I think if he's fit and he plays, I, it feels like he is probably the, the key player in, in the entire game. And, and similarly for Mendy, we did an interview with him on The Analyst this week, and he he starts more possessions that end in a shot than any other goalkeeper. And that's because he his short passing is probably, the I would say, the best. I mean, Edison, again, is is a close second maybe, but in terms of kind of risky, space-creating passes, Mendy really is kind of one of the best in, in the world. Um, and him being back, again, you know, didn't play and, and hasn't played in, in some of Chelsea's recent defeats as well. So... Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's really it's set up really well. To continue what Tom was saying, I think Chelsea have to score the first goal. If Manchester City score first, I think it's done. I think it's over. But I think from what Tom said, I think if they can go at it from the beginning and they could make that first breakthrough and just get in that Manchester City mindset a little bit, you know, they haven't won this trophy. If you're Tuchel, you're saying go, yeah, make them ponder it, make them think, oh no, is this going to happen again? So I, I think it is all about that first goal. Crikey. Burn Van 3000, as I mentioned, writing two. He says, after UEFA mandated cardigans for the managers in the Europa League final, what will the managers in the Champions League final have to wear? Don't know. Well, well Pep likes a hoodie, doesn't he? Uh, and Tuchel likes a big sort of puffer jacket. So I think there's a similar kind of urban vibe there already. I wouldn't okay. have thought they're too far away. It's disgusting. In terms of, you know, finding it's the Champions League ground. final. They should smarten themselves up. Hmm. I agree well, with you, you Lindsay. say that, but Julian Nagelsmann would be smart, and I don't think people would be up for that either. So. Well, but then he he jumped the smart shark, didn't he, Nagelsmann? Some of those suits were so natty, they clearly distracted his own players. Um, so I, I think we'll probably see a slightly pared down Julian Nagelsmann on on the Bayern touchline next season, unless he goes the opposite direction. Yeah, full on Lederhosen. I mean, if anyone's going to carry it off, it's probably him. I think he could. City are in form. They finished off the Premier League season with a 5-0 win over Everton. Of course, they beat PSG 4-1 on aggregate in the semi-final. Chelsea, who defeated Real Madrid 3-1 in the semis, losing three of their last four. Of course, they concluded their league campaign with that 2-1 defeat at Villa. With Guardiola in the Champions League, there is always a risk that he does something completely left field. Um, and, And that has been something that you know, against him quite a lot in recent seasons. Lederhosen, for, for example. But I think what we've seen from him and from City in the competition this season is that he has generally stuck to a formula that's that's worked. He hasn't overthought things, which is something he's been accused of. So, yeah, I, w- I mean, you never know. You, you never know what you're going to get with Guardiola, but... Can you imagine if the lineups come out on Saturday and Scott Carson's in goal? Imagine the internet would genuinely break... <laughs> And Edison's up front. <laughs> Brilliant. Wow. All right. Well, uh, Thomas Tuchel and Thiago Silva are both back in the final a year after being defeated there with Paris Saint-Germain against Bayern Munich. Pep aiming for his first Champions League title in a decade. Here's a fun fact. In his entire managerial career, which is the club that Pep has lost more matches against than any other? That's right, listener. It is Chelsea. Will that run continue on Saturday? Will it? Duncan, Tom, Lindsay, call it. I'm, I, honest, I'm I honestly can't call it. 
Really? I, I think City. Well, we've got two cities and I can't call it. Well, I'll I'll go Chelsea just to balance it up. Brilliant. All right. Excellent. We'll be back on Sunday, of course, with our reaction to that and events at Wembley. But we haven't concluded today's show yet. Not even close. Because next up, we're going to wrap it up with the denouement of our Intertotally Cup. We're sponsored for this episode of The Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. The Inter-Totally Cup, sponsored by Paddy Power. Stadiums might not yet be full, but Paddy's offers are at full capacity. Get a free bet if one leg of your 4-plus fold acca lets you down on all football matches and markets. T's and C's apply. 18-plus, begumbleaware.org. Inter-Totally Cup time for the final time this season. 16 hopefuls started the competition all those months ago, and it's been... A tournament of shocks, I think you'd say. Last year's runner-up, Daniel Storey, out in the first round. Julian Laurence finishing third. Matt Davis-Adams making it to round two. All sorts of turn-ups. But we've been left now with two finalists. Let's meet them. Up first. A man with no respect for reputation. He's been digging holes and taking souls throughout this intertotally. He is Jewish dynamite. He is Benji Laniado. With his hands in the air, Good. waving them. Like he just doesn't care. It's Benji Laniado, the freestyling underdog, the carefree usurper, the upset in the making that has been one of the revelations of this intertotally. Benji, welcome to the final. Hey Jimbo, yeah, very exciting, very exciting. Yeah, you beat off three men to get here, what? And now you face Cox, uh, how are you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling good, has Julian stopped moaning yet by the way? My God, the incredible sulk, just he wouldn't stop. Like seriously, like, I've seen some embarrassing upsets in semi-finals from you know, French participants recently, but that is right up there immediately, I mean Jesus Christ. Right, going for a little bit of a cheap shot there against Julian. We've got to leave that semi behind, Benji. It's all about now the big one. A 10-question final against the reigning champion. Out of 10, what kind of score are you aiming for? What are you going to be happy with? I'd be happy with anything over five. I mean, I feel, you know, I feel like I'm up against Roger Federer here. I just, you know, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm playing against myself and, and, and hoping that Michael uh, slips up along the way. Well, we'll see. We'll see. As you know, Paddy Power donates £10 to your nominated charity, along with proceeds from another tenor on the wager of your choice. What's your charity and wager? 
It's the Whittington Hospital. Um, and Jimbo, I'm going to go for it. My bet is that England are going to win the Euros. Boom. All right, then. Well, are you going to win the Intertotally Cup? Let's meet your opponent. And his opponent. Everybody shake your stir. The rebel's here and he's quiz turf. Everybody shake your stuff. The rebel's here. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the one and only Rebel MC, Michael Cox. Yes, indeed. Michael Cox, the champion. Michael, you've changed the music. Uh, that wasn't my decision. I don't know if there's some kind of mind games that uh, has gone on. Between, Producer uh, Ben. Quizmaster and opponent. But, yeah, that has really... Um, affected my preparation for the contest so I'm not happy right. about that already a little bit off kilter the champion there uh, it's been an interesting tournament for you so far uh, you face Tom Williams you beat him you face Matt Davis Adams you beat him and Sasha Gurinov in the semi-final also dispatched but it has been close a narrow one point win over Tom and that tiebreaker of course with Sasha have the nerves been getting to you Michael yeah, I haven't played my best stuff. Hopefully going for a bit of a Spain 2012. They kept on sneaking through by the old goal and then ran up some, some de- you know, a decent score in the final. So hoping for something along those lines. Ah, he's been revising. <laughs> One of the things that, that really has marked your progress so far has been that uncanny ability under extreme pressure to pull answers almost out of nowhere. We'll see if you can manage that in this 10-question final. Michael, your charity and wager? Uh, I'm still playing for Sparkle, and I'm going to go for Chelsea to lift the European Cup this weekend. So not 90 minutes betting, because I fancy extra time or penalties maybe. But yeah, Chelsea to lift the trophy. Crikey. Okay. Well, right now it's all about the intertotally, of course. And let's begin with Benji's 10 questions. Benji, question one. Harry Kane finished this season as both the outright top goal scorer and the outright top assist provider. Who's the only other player to do that in Premier League history? Oh, good question. Um, I don't know. So can I have another question, please? (laughs) Um, Do a Michael Cox grope for it. I, I would guess, I'm going to guess Thierry Henry. It's not. It's Andy Cole. Question two. Yeah. What is the name of the former Liverpool coach who has guided Blackpool to the League One playoff final this week? Yeah, I refuse to answer that question. Um, no, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Okay, the answer is Neil Critchley. Question three. Cristiano Ronaldo and Mario Mandzukic share an achievement that no other player has managed in the Champions League era. What is it? What have Cristiano Ronaldo and Mario Mandzukic done in the Champions League era that nobody else has done? They both scored in two finals. But I'm trying to think if it's anything more than that. I think it's fair to say that it is. Um... Mandzukic has scored for both a winning and a losing side. They've scored in two finals for two different clubs. That is correct. Well done. Ah, nice. 
And you're on the scoreboard. Question four then, Benji. Two England players have taken three penalties, and only three, in tournament shootouts down the years, but have scored all three. Who are those two England players? In shootouts? Yes. You have to give me a little bit of time here, Jimbo. Um, In shootouts, in tournaments, England players scored all three. Yep, going to have to hurry you here. Oh, God. I'm just thinking that Lampard's missed one, Gerard's missed one. These guys have never missed, taken three penalties, and all three have found the net. Michael Owen? Is that one? No, it's not. I'm afraid ah. the answer is David Platt and Alan Shearer. Fiendish. Right, question five then. Two players have captained their country to World Cup triumphs while playing their club football in England. Who are they? So become world champions while playing club football in England. Hugo Lloris. Is correct. And the other? Bear with me. A World Cup won while playing club football in England. I think I might have to press you for an answer here. Just Benji, a World Day Cup Shams, winner Day in Shams England. Was playing in 98. 90, yeah, Who 90, won a World 90. Cup while playing club football in England? Oh, Bobby Moore. It is Bobby Moore. <laughs> Jesus. Question six. What was the year, the first time that two teams from the same country played each other in the Champions League final? So I think that was Real Madrid and Valencia. And I think it was uh, 2000. It was, Benji. Was it? Nice. Question seven. You're currently on three out of six. Question seven. Enia Luco has just been appointed a sporting director of which US team? Oh, crap. Is it into Miami? It's not into Miami. It's Angel City FC. Question eight, Benji. What event during a game against the Netherlands at the 1974 World Cup made Swedish defender Jan Olsen mildly famous? This game against the Netherlands, 74 World Cup. Was he Cruyff turned? He was the first victim of Johan Cruyff's eponymous turn. Correct. Four out of eight. You're now one away from that breaking even point you were looking for. Okay, question mm. nine. Two father-son duos have won the Premier League. One was Kasper and Peter Schmeichel. Who was the other? Premier League. Premier League father-son duos. Uh, Wright Phillips. Ian Wright and Wright Phillips. Is correct, Benji. And question 10, riding that momentum, the first UEFA Cup final was played between two English clubs. Who were they? Oh, that's annoying. I'm, do I have to, can I, can I, surely if I get one of these, that gets a point. Can we, because I think that... Is, Producer Charlie is implacable on this. He says, okay. no, you have to provide both finalists. It's a UEFA Cup final and the first one. It's a matter of significant okay, I, think, the I think one of them is Tottenham Hotspur. That is correct. One of them is Tottenham Hotspur. Who did they play in that first UEFA Cup final? Can I get a half a point for that? 
Um, oh, that's so grueling. Um, okay, I'm just going to guess Liverpool. It was Wolves. It was oh, Wolves. Come on. Yeah. First UEFA Cup final, Spurs against Wolves. So with a score of five and potentially a half out of ten. Five and a half. Benji Lanyardo, how are you feeling? Yeah, fine. I think I could have got the... Um, if I, you know, if, if I had another maybe hour to 90 minutes, I would have got the, um, <laughs> the, uh, the England penalty takers. But right. pl- yeah, Platt plat I probably wouldn't have got. Um, but yeah, I'm fi- listen, I achieved my five, and so I can, I can leave whatever happens with my head held high. Well, let's see what happens when we ask Michael Cox his 10 questions. Here they come, Michael. Question one. What was unusual about Chelsea's top Premier League goal scorer this season, apart from the fact that he only got seven? Uh, all were penalties. That's correct. Question two. Which football league club reached the playoffs this season but sacked their manager a few days before their semi-final? Uh, oh, I read this the other day and I've forgotten which club it was. Um, uh, Rochdale? No, it was not Rochdale. It was Tranmere Rovers. Question three. What are Marcel Desailly, Paulo Souza, Gerard Piquet and Samuel Eto'o the only players to do in the Champions League era? They've won it with two different clubs, I think, in consecutive years. Well, you think right, Michael. Two out of three. On to question four. Two England players have missed a penalty in a tournament shootout, then gone on to score in a subsequent tournament shootout. Can you name them? They've missed a penalty in one shootout and scored in another one. In a subsequent tournament shootout, so it's not that same tournament. Uh, So one is obviously Stuart Pearce. That's correct. And the other... I'm guessing... It's probably someone who missed in 2006 and scored in 2012... So either Gerard or Ashley Cole, I think. Which one do you think, Michael? They're definitely both missing 2006. I can't imagine which one wouldn't have taken one in 2012. Going to have to press you for a decision on this. Stuart Pearce and? Uh, Gerard. Is correct. Extraordinary scenes. So Cole, actually Cole missed in 2012, didn't he? And it was, yeah, he didn't. Yeah, he scored in 20. Yeah, that's right. Remarkable. Question five. Aside from 1966, two players have scored in a World Cup final while playing their club football in England. Can you name them? So this is aside from 1966. Uh, One of them is Emmanuel Petit in 98. You're already on what could be a crucial half point with this. The other player to have scored in a World Cup final while playing his club football in England... Was 2002, it's not 2006, it's not 2010, is it 2014? Who scored in 2014? No. Michael, again, we'll have to press you for an answer here. Yeah, sorry, I don't think I know this and I'm not sure I can give a guess that might even make sense. Benji, can you help Michael? Uh, No, thanks. It's haircutting's Paul Pogba. In 2018. Ah, Oh, God. Question six. Who was sent off in the 2008 Champions League final between Chelsea and Manchester United? 
Uh, it was right near the end of Drogba, wasn't it? It was Drogba. It was Drogba. On to question seven. Michael, you're now on four points. One and a half away from tying Benji. Question seven. Carla Ward has just been appointed as the manager of which WSL team? It's annoying because I knew Benji's one. I don't know this one about women's football. Um, there's a few clubs that have just parted with their manager. There's Spurs, there's Villa, there's Man United. I'm going to go for... Villa. It's correct. Extraordinary, extraordinary stuff from Michael Cox once again here in the final. Benji's applauding. Game recognises game, eh? Uh, question eight then. With now just half a point to go before you've reached Benji's score. What was notable about the winning penalty in the 1976 championship final between Czechoslovakia and West Germany? Uh, it was the Penenka. It was the Penenka. And with that, Michael, you have secured the Intertotally Cup for another year. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Any words for Benji on what was a close final? Uh, no, it was, I mean, very impressive performance. I must say, that I think the first time I met Benji, he, he came into the podcast equipped with a list of players who were the only player from their country to have scored in the Premier League. And anyone who brings that list in is inevitably going to be good at football quizzes. So, yeah, good good run to the final. Right. Um, presumably this hasn't quite sunk in yet, Michael. That's why you seem pretty matter-of-fact <laughs> about that, wasn't it? Yeah, still coming to terms with it, yeah. Extraordinary. Well, it'll be a life changer, of course, but let's hope you remain the Michael Cox that we know and love. The returning champion, Michael Cox, everybody. Benji, it was a, a tricky start for you in this final, but you came, you, you battled back strongly. Yeah, listen, you know, if you if you had told a young me growing up in South East London that I would end up in a podcast quiz final with Michael Cox's own marking, I would have said, what the hell's a podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice one, okay. Brilliant stuff. Well, there are, of course, two more questions to go. Would you like to have a quick, fast shootout, Benji and Michael, for these last two? Let's do it. All right. Question nine. Ian Wright played for three other English clubs after leaving Arsenal. West Ham was one. Can you name either of the other two? Burnley. Yes. What's the other one? It was Nottingham Forest. Mm. Question 10 then. Three English teams have reached only one European Cup or Champions League final and lost it. Which three are they? Arsenal's one. Spurs. And one other side reached a European Cup or a Champions League final but lost it. Ipswich, no. Not Ipswich. Michael? Leeds. It is Leeds. Good Lord. Good Lord. Magnificent stuff. Well, there you go. That's enough questions for now. And that brings to an end the Intertotally Cup for this season. Many thanks to you both for making it such a special, special tournament. Benji and Michael, we'll see you back again soon. I look forward to it. He's done it again, listeners. Michael Cox is the Intertotally champion for the second year in a row. And if you concur with Cox's bet that Chelsea will lift the Champions League trophy, but not necessarily after 90 minutes, it's priced at 15 to 8 on PaddyPower.com or the Paddy Power app. Odds are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only, and please 
gamble responsibly. Wow, how about that for drama? To my mind, the most satisfying of the big finals we've had so far this week. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. thanks. They certainly beat the Europa League final for drama. Yeah, um, yeah. but slightly, slightly dismaying to discover that the questions in the final are so much easier than the questions in the first round. Bit, bit, of, an, bit of an odd one, bit of an anomaly that. But right, what can you do? It's. Um, I mean, it, uh, can I just say it's been an outstanding performance by Nick Miller coming up with all these questions. It was nearly as long as the penalty shootout in the Europa <laughs> yeah, League final. Did go on quite a lot, and that's the edited version, Lindsay because there were some long pauses in there. Crikey. Anyway, congratulations to Michael Cox and to you guys who got almost all of the answers there as we were listening to them competing. But that brings us to the end of this this Totally Football show. As I say, we're back on Sunday reviewing the other finals. That'll be happening this weekend. But for now, many thanks to Tom Williams, Duncan Alexander and Lindsay Hooper. Uh, have yourselves a great time until we're back. And many thanks for listening, y'all. See you soon. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.